You know, it's... Uh, I know I say this all the time. I, I can't help it. I Honestly, I just can't help it. It's really good to be here with you all. <laughs> last Sunday, uh, last week, we had our Good Friday service, and then we had our Easter service. And, um, yeah, it was a good time to be here in the church. And uh, I woke up Monday and Tuesday, and, um, and um, I just was still enjoying what had happened over the weekend. And, and, you know, we gather here for a relatively short amount of time, right? I mean, we're here an hour and a half, maybe, on a Sunday. If you're here for Sunday school, I think you're two and a half hours and a half hour in between of talking. And and something happens when we gather like this, you know. For that bit of time that we're here, things are as they're supposed to be. We're here. We're united in our hearts. We are worshiping our God. And, and you may not realize it, but that marks your soul. That, that turns you. It changes you. And, and just a little bit more, you become like Jesus Christ when you come here and you're in his presence. So welcome to everybody that's here. We're glad that you are with us. We have some special guests with us this morning. I I don't normally do this. I I don't mind doing it here because these guys are missionaries, and so they're kind of used to it. And I think I'm going to say it right, the Mangaya family. Is that right? If you would stand up. This is June, and his wife is Benji, and their son is Fidel. And we just want to welcome you. Um, They have been here before. It was before my time, but we welcome you in the name of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for serving him. They're they're from the Philippines, and they're missionaries in the Philippines. So welcome. Good to have you with us. So our scripture reading today is uh, just one verse out of the book of Romans. And, uh, and it's Romans 8.18, and this is what we read. Paul, the apostle, who gave his life for the cause of Christ, says these words. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. You know, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I'm really glad to be here. You know, those of us who are here every week, we, we, we have our friends. We're, we're, this is our family. Uh, for us, every Sunday is kind of like a family reunion. And, and it's so good to see people and talk with them and to catch up. But more happens than that. We, we know that you're here in our present, in our, in our midst, that your presence is right here with us. And, and Lord, we sense that. We know that sometimes we, we know it more than others uh, because we're so, well, we're so fickle and changeable, Lord. But, but you're not. You're constant. And you, you keep your promise. And you tell us that you'll meet with us when we gather uh, as we do, and uh, so we come and we we enjoy one another's company, and we enjoy you, and we worship, Lord, and and then we take this wonderful book, the great treasure that um, you have entrusted to us and to the church, 
and, and we look into it and we see your word and and then you speak to us through that and and that's what we want now lord we're asking that you would speak to us through your word today uh, father we thank you that um that you're not a silent god that every single person that's here today you know inside and out and you know what we need even when we don't know it ourselves so lord we say together in our hearts your servant listens speak lord and we ask that you would help us to obey you when we hear you and it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, that we pray. Amen. Now, recently I, uh, I saw an article written by one of my old seminary professors. He wasn't as old as he back then as he is now, but uh, I saw this article, and he talks about where he uh, had a conversation with the pastor of a rather large church, and he asked this pastor about a Sunday school program, to which the pastor replied, we don't have one. Sunday school is a waste of time. People need to be out doing ministry. Now, my old professor expressed real surprise at this, and especially so because he knew that this particular man always spoke topically and, uh, and he always uh, addressed um, what seminary professors and pastors call felt needs. In other words, that pastor was always trying to scratch the itches that he thought his people had. And that's fine as far as it goes, but the truth of the matter is it unfortunately doesn't go far enough. By its very nature, such preaching is limited in its scope and it leaves entire realms of biblical knowledge unaddressed, knowledge which may have nothing to do with the here and now, but which is essential to living a genuine and full and robust Christian life. You see, it really is not enough to scratch an itch. We have to build a foundation. Or we could change the analogy. You can grow either a pumpkin or an oak. A pumpkin grows fast and lasts for one season. But an oak grows slowly, and yet it withstands the winds of time. Now, Sunday schools help build a foundation or grow an oak, and as such, they could have been a great help to that particular church. But you know... The preaching of the word can also do that. It can build the, the foundation and grow the oaks. And many pastors, and I'm one of them, that believe that we need to be about that business. We need to be building foundations, growing oak trees. And, uh, and so that's the way we try to share the word of God. And that means that there are some things that we talk about that you need to hear, which may not be useful to you at the moment. And yet, as we make our way through God's Word, um, the itches you have eventually get scratched, and I think in a much more satisfying way, because you're growing and becoming strong as believers through the process. So maybe you can think of it this way. Um, 
we all know that we need vitamins, right? And so many of us take a tablet every day. And they don't have any taste, and there's no immediate satisfaction or benefit that we can feel. But they are there quietly doing their job. And if we don't have them, sooner or later, we know it. So the passage that we're going to look at this morning is kind of like taking our vitamins. I really don't know uh, how it might meet some of your more immediate needs that you might have, but, but it's all part of growing in our faith and becoming strong as we learn more about God's Word. And it actually does have, I think, more application to our lives than we might first realize. Uh, But because the things we're going to talk about deal with events in the future, it's maybe a little bit more difficult for us to see that. So we've been making our way through the book of Revelation, which deals with the end-time events and things that are in the future. And, And we've seen through that process how they can indeed imply to us in our day and our age. And we're going to try to do that again with this passage. So two weeks ago was the last time we were in Revelation. Last week I kind of took a break from it because it was Easter. But two weeks ago we were in Revelation and we finished chapter 6 of that uh, book, if you'll remember. And that chapter ended with a question, which I think Mark might be able to get up on the screen. Uh, The last verse in chapter 6 says, Uh, For the great day of God's wrath has come, and who can withstand it? So that question closed out chapter 6. And that really uh, was less of a question than a cry of despair by those who were right then under the wrath of God and knew that more was coming. They knew they could not stand. They knew for them all was lost and worse was still yet to come. And yet, even though it wasn't intended as a real question, seeking a real answer, the first part of chapter 7 actually answers that question in verses 1 through 8. But then so does the rest of the chapter, but in a different way. So if you're not already there, I would ask you to join me in uh, Revelation uh, chapter 7, last book of the Bible, the 7th chapter. And of course, Mark will get the text up on the screen for us as uh, we get there. So we, uh, when we turn from that last verse in chapter 6 to the first verse of chapter 7, we we find the scene has changed from a, a picture of the lost who are trying to flee from the presence of God to a scene of a of a kind of cosmic picture of the earth. And, and of course, if, if you've read Revelation, you know that kind of thing happens rem- regularly. Remember, um, we're being presented with a vision which was given to the Apostle John. And in some ways, visions are kind of like dreams in, in that things are very fluid and, and sequences change without warning and often very quickly. But, but unlike dreams, which may or may not have any meaning, This vision from God, it it always has a meaning, even if we don't quite understand it. And and these sequences, which we find in the book of Revelation, they're just not slammed up against one another, although it may feel that way when you're reading it. There really is a connection between them, just as we see 
here. You see, the lost are attempting to hide from God, and they, and they ask this rhetorical question that for them is a rhetorical question, expressing their despair. And then the scene changes in order to answer that question, which really does need to be answered. If God is going to pour out his wrath, who can stand? Who can go through it? And so in this scene, we're introduced to five angels that we've not met before, although we've already come across uh, any number of different spiritual beings. And four of these angels, they exercise a power over the entire earth, and the fifth angel comes bringing instructions to the other four. So in verses 1 through 3, we read this. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. And then I saw another angel coming up uh, from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until, and we're going to stop right there for now because there are a number of things we have to talk about right here. First, and I had to do this just to get it out of the way, and I have to do it, is that expression, the four corners of the earth, is just that. It's an expression This is not telling us anything at all about John's cosmology, how he views the heavens and the earth, any more than it does for us, for we use that same expression. You see, that roundness of the earth is a fact that has literally been known for centuries. The roundness of the earth is, uh, is discoverable simply by observation. Anyone who's ever watched a sailboat disappear over the horizon knows it. The hull disappears first and then the sail because the lower parts are covered by the curvature of the earth. You see it when the space shuttle is launched, right? That shuttle goes up and it's perpendicular and as you watch it, it looks like it's turning in the sky. It's not. Relative to the earth that it's over, it's still perpendicular. But we are rotating out of the way that makes it look like it turns. It is simply not true that the roundness of the earth is a modern discovery. And people that tell you that it is are either, one, ignorant and they don't know, or they are deliberately deceptive. And the Bible itself um, makes reference to the roundness of the earth in at least two places, in Isaiah and Job both, although it usually uses what we call phenomenological language, language affecting how we see or experience things, just like the sun rose that, We know it doesn't rise, but we use it, and that's what the Bible does. And that's all John is doing there. He's using an expression. Now, what this text is really telling us is the reach of those angels. That is, their power extends over the entire earth. And and what they're doing is pictured as holding back restraining the wind. Now, I want to translate that for you, if I can. You see, it's not about wind. This is, after all, a vision, and so it's uh, full of symbolism. 
it, it, wind is a picture of destructive forces when it's blowing really hard, and it's about destructive forces. And, and those forces are poised to fall on this earth, and the angels are shown as holding them back, as restraining them and keeping them from falling. And, uh, and, uh, and that's what we see here. Now, there are some people that say that this whole vision is uh, symbolic, that there aren't really four angels uh, restraining anything. It's all just a picture to show that something's keeping those destructive forces at bay in our world. And that's possible, but I don't think so. I think it really is better understood as a glimpse into the very real spiritual battle that is raging in our world today. There are forces at work which, if they could, would destroy us. And God was going to use those forces to express his wrath at just the right time. But right now, there are servants of our God that restrain them and keep them at bay. Now, that number four may be representative. I mean, it goes with the picture of the of the four corners, and the number itself is a symbolic of incompleteness that there is more yet to come. So there may be, and I think there are, many, many more angels involved in that battle. What we're seeing here is this picture of these destructive forces which would attack and destroy us if they're not restrained. Now this fifth angel comes, and he brings a message to the other four, but it's really a message for us, and, and it's an important piece of information because he, he says it in a loud voice, and so we, we pick up our thought in the middle of verse 2. He, the, the fifth angel, called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. And then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. So this instruction given by that fifth angel uh, to the other four is really for our benefits, for our understanding. So what we want to try to do is understand it a little better. We want to unpack it, and, and there are several puzzles that kind of need to be addressed. Now, I know that this is uh, complicated stuff, and some of you have read Revelation, and you, you just enjoy all the intricacies of it, and some of you, it may be new to you, and you're not quite sure what's going on, but, but stay with me and pay attention, and you'll learn things about this book that will eventually can be a help to you, and hopefully we can apply them at the end. So, so again, one of the things we need to ask here is, is, um, is what does it mean by sealing of these Israelites, and who are we talking about? Uh, many people believe that the Israel that's talking about here is spiritual Israel, and, and that means the church, not literal Israel at all. And, and there are several places in the New Testament, and it appears that the church is referred to in the way, although we could interpret those differently. Yet even if we could say that the church is sometimes referred to as spiritual Israel, that doesn't mean that's what's happening here. And as a matter of fact, I don't believe it is. Now some people would simply dismiss that idea of the church as being spiritual Israel by saying that, that um, the church is going to be raptured out of danger anyway. And, um, and of course, if they are, then it can't be spiritual Israel. But, but there are many believe, Bible-believing Christians that 
don't think the church is going to be raptured at the beginning of the tribulation. It's going to, Jesus is going to come at the end. They believe the church will go through that tribulation. But I have to tell you, there's a, there's a really important and fundamental reason for believing that this passage is not referring to the church. It's really important that you hear this. You see, the Christian is already sealed. We don't need to be sealed because it's already happened. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul says this any number of times uh, in the New Testament, and one of them that I want to look at just as an example is near the end of Ephesians in chapter 4. And Paul says this, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And I think that truth, that Christians are already sealed, well, it pretty much eliminates the church from our consideration in this pas- uh, passage. It really is about literal Israel. So what does it mean, then, for them to be sealed? Well, there are two primary um, things that it means. And the first one is it's a sign of ownership. So um, maybe when you were younger, you did this, or maybe one of your kids did this, they, they went to, say, a, a camp, a basketball camp, or some other kind of camp, and they took their basketball with them, right? And before they left, the first thing they did is they wrote their name on that basketball, and they did that uh, to show ownership. You put your mark on it. That's what the seal is. It's, a, it, it's showing ownership, and that God owns these people. And the second thing that the seal does is it provides protection. So if you're at camp and you've got your basketball and it's got your name on it, you're not going to let just anyone walk away from it if you can help it. Uh, and, And that's what we're seeing here. God is saying, these are my people, and he is going to protect them. Now, there are a number of places in the Old Testament we could look at as an example, but the Probably the most important one is the Passover. You remember the story, right? The angel of death is going to come through, and he's going to kill all the firstborn. And so the lamb is sacrificed. The blood is put on each side of the door and across the lintel on the top. And as the angel of death comes through, uh, wherever that blood is, he passes over that house, you see. It's marked, I own this house, and I protect this house. And so that's what God is doing here. He's placing his seal on the nation of Israel. And in so doing, he's, he's claiming ownership. He's declaring to everyone everywhere that this nation belongs to God Almighty. And he's committing himself to protect them from the disasters that are soon to come on the earth. Now, I have to tell you, there's one thing that is... Uh, the ceiling is not doing, uh, even though God's committed to protecting Israel, it doesn't protect them from persecution. Just as Christians are not protected from persecution. In our world today, all over our world today, there are people like us who have put their faith in Christ, who are dying for their faith. They have their property taken, they're put into slavery, they're crucified, they're beheaded, all because they belong to Christ. And and Israel is not going to be protected from persecution. We learn that as we make our way through the rest of the book. What it protects them from is the wrath of God that is poured out on the world. Now look, there's a couple of more things to note about this passage before we can move on to the next part of chapter 7. 
First, in, in verses 5 through 8, we learned that there are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, which were sealed. And Okay, I'm going to get into the numbers. 12 is, is the number of Israel, and 1,000 is 10 times 10 times 10. So 10 is the number of perfection. So it's, it's, uh, it's perfect completion here. And, and so, you know, there's this 12 tribes multiplied for 12,000 from every tribe, and you have 144,000. And all of that means that Israel will be completely sealed and protected. But then, when you look more closely, which we're not going to do at this list, it does not match any of the 18 different lists in the Old Testament. So Joseph is overrepresented, while the tri- tribe of Dan is admitted to altogether. And there's a lot of speculation, a lot of conjecture on why Dan isn't there. Now, one idea is is that uh, John just merely forgot to include him. It was just oversight. And I, I simply reject that idea. This is God's word, and nothing is here by mistake. Other people uh, uh, point to this as support that John's really talking about spiritual Israel, which is another idea that I reject, and you already know why, because Christians, the church is already sealed. And some people think that an antichrist is going to come from the tribe of Dan, and that's why it's left off the list. And the proponents of this idea point to some Old Testament passages. For instance, Dan was a center of idolatry in the Old Testament, and and Jacob, Dan's father, when he was blessing all 12 of his children, prophesies over his children, and he refers to Dan as a snake, which is a symbol of Satan, the serpent. And there are also extra-biblical sources that point to that direction. And of those three options, that one seems the most reasonable. But there's really one other way of thinking about this passage. It might be just a little bit better, and that's this. You know, when the Great Tribulation is finally here, the people in it will understand they will know what it means they'll know the same kinds of things that we can discover from our study but they will know more and they will understand exactly what it means and this may be one of those places now there's one more thing i want to note before we go on and that is that this ceiling that occurs does not necessarily represent salvation it may But it may not just as Israel, all of Israel in the Old Testament belonged to God, and yet not all of the people really believe and trusted in God. Now, that's that first section, the sealing of the nation of Israel. And we're going to come back to that uh, and hopefully see why that's important. But first, we're going to look at the rest of the chapter. And and all that we've seen so far, uh, you know, for the first eight, verses of chapter 7, the fate of the nation of Israel in the end times, occurs at the very beginning of the tribulation. And, and, um, and, uh, and uh, they, they, they belong to God, and he's going to keep them from his wrath. It won't touch them as they go through the tribulation. Now we're going to turn to the final scene in chapter 7, which shows the end of the tribulation right so something that happens right at the very beginning and then something that happens all the way at the end and uh and if we were to have a kind of a uh uh brief uh, timeline here uh, we'd say that that we have a glimpse of a scene that is uh 
going to happen, and then we see something in the middle, and then we see something in the end. And we've seen this, uh, what happens in uh, the rest of the chapter briefly in the fifth seal. You remember when that seal was open, those who had died for the faith were under the altar, and they were given white garments, and they were told to wait for more of their number that was to come. And so on a timeline, Israel was sealed, and then at some point, this fifth seal was opened, and we have this glimpse of the people who have died from their, for their faith. And then we have what happens in the rest of chapter 7 at the very end times. And so the martyrs under the altar are now here in this scene at the very end. And it really includes everyone else who came through the Great Tribulation. And as such, it's a picture of... God's people, all of God's people as they have ever lived. And it really is a pretty cool picture. And so in verse 9 we read this. After this I looked at that is, when the vision of the sealing of the nation of Israel which occurs at the beginning of the tribulation was over, John had another vision which reveals how things will be at the end of it. After this, when I looked, there were before me a great multitude that no one could count from every tribe Uh, Every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb. And so here we find in the presence of the living God, we find people from Israel, and they certainly are part of this. Those people who were sealed are there at the end of chapter 7. But we also find every other kind of person imaginable. And John simply multiplies words to show us just how vast the reach of the gospel will be. So every nation, there won't be a single country where the gospel won't go and bear fruit. Every tribe, people from every separate identifiable group within those nations are found in this picture at the end of chapter 11. Every people, no matter how small the group, the gospel will reach them and many will respond. Every language, even language, won't prove to be a barrier to the good news and some of every language will be there. That white horse that we talked about on the first seal that I said was a picture of the gospel going out through all the earth is doing that. It's going in all the earth and people are responding. And verse 9 goes on to tell us about these people. They were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And that white robes, as you know, represents righteousness and, and the palm branches uh, represent their victory. And both of those things came from God. Verse 10 tells us what was in their hearts as they stood there. And they cried out in a loud voice. They were exuberant when they said, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. See, they're declaring their their salvation, that it came from God, who's described as the one sitting on the throne. And it also came from the Lamb. So that, that scene of the redeemed of earth giving glory to God for the salvation... That really does move all of heaven so that we read in verse 11, all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. Every living 
creature in heaven was in awe of what God had done for his people. He claimed them as his own, and he brought them through that awful time, through his wrath, completely unscathed by it, into his glorious presence, right before the throne, which is the most honored position of any in all of creation. And well, those uh, angels and heavenly beings should have been in awe of that. You know, an awful lot has happened between the end of verse 8 and the beginning of verse 9. Between the sealing of the nation of Israel and the gathering of the redeemed, the entire great tribulation occurs between those two events. And as John stands there observing all of this, a question is put to him. There's two questions, actually, in verse 13. Then one of the elders asked me, John says, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? Who are they? Where did they come from? Well, John doesn't even venture, I guess. He he instead defers to the elder, who then answers his own question. Verse 14, John answered, sir, you know. And he, the elder, said, these are those who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. See, they came through the tribulation. That's, uh, that's where they were from. It wasn't a geographical regi- uh, reference. They, they came through the great tribulation. And they had put their faith in Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice. And that's who they are. And that's who we are. That's what we are have done isn't it haven't we most of us here at least put our faith in jesus christ and if and if you have then you can begin to see how that applies to you and to me you see god has sealed us he has sealed us for the day of redemption he has claimed us of his, for his own and he will protect us Not necessarily from persecution. Sometimes he does, but not always. But we will never experience God's wrath. And you you know, don't you? I mean, from the book of Romans, you know that God is expressing his wrath every single day. And yet we're protected. We go through it unscathed. But sometimes the believer is persecuted. And no matter what happens in our life, we will be with God in awe and singing his praises in the most honored position in heaven, which even angels would envy if they could envy. And just knowing that ought to make a difference in your life. Whatever you face, whatever you have gone through, whatever you will go through, none of that has the last word. God does. And his word to us is a good word. More than that, if the gospel can have such an effect through the tribulation so that so many are coming to Christ during that time that they cannot even be numbered and we can have confidence we ought to have confidence in its power in our day you remember we said that it was entirely possible for things to get worse and worse while getting better and better at the very same time 
Politically, socially, economically, things could get worse and worse and worse and worse. But spiritually, things could get better and better and better because more people are coming to Christ. And everything that happens here on this earth is temporal, but those decisions made for Christ are eternal. You know, there are reliable sources that tell us that in parts of the Middle East, entire mosques have been converted to Christ. They keep it a secret because they would be putting their lives in jeopardy, and they they continue to bring people in and to the faith. See, that's the power of the gospel of the word of God. There's power in God's word. As the apostle tells us, we ought not to be shamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then everyone else after that. That ought to mean something to us. That picture of what's going to happen in the end times, it means something to us today because we have the gospel and we belong to Christ. And finally, I think the sealing of the nation of Israel tells us something about our God. You know, he's faithful. He has not forgotten his people whom he first claimed for himself. I want you to think about this for a minute. What other nation has ever existed and then been scattered all over to once again come back and be a nation again? And Israel, it happened to them not once, but twice. I had a friend from my grammar school days that after I became a Christian, I would witness to, and Bruce was as lost as he can get. He didn't believe anything at all about God. And I would share my faith with him. And he just poo-pooed it. But one night, out of the blue, he said to me, You know, there's one thing that makes me wonder if everything you've been saying is true or not. He said, And that's the nation of Israel. I just can't explain how it can exist today unless there was a God standing behind it. It ought to remind us that God is faithful, and I think it ought to remind us of a promise. Those who bless Israel will be blessed, and those who curse Israel will be cursed. As a nation, we stood beside Israel for the last 48 years or whatever it is now. That's changing. We ought to pray. And we ought to pray for them. We ought to bless the Jewish people. If nothing else happens, we ought to pray for them and bless them in that way. So we find an answer to the question at the end of chapter 6. Who can stand in the day of God's wrath? Well, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ and those whom God will seal the nation of Israel. Those and no other. But stand in that day they will, even as God pours his wrath out upon humankind.
And it's all to the glory of God. Won't you pray with me, please? Father, we have uh, covered, again, a lot of territory, but it's hard not to um, touch on all the things that we did this morning. And we thank you that you are faithful. Uh, you were faithful to Israel, and you will be faithful to every one of us here. That's really my prayer today. If there are any here that don't know you, that maybe for the first time the light would begin to come on in their minds and their hearts and that they would be drawn to you, your love and your mercy and your grace. And the powerful pictures that we see here in the book of Revelation would move in their souls. And indeed, may they move in ours that we might be changed and become more like our Savior. And we, uh, we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So let-